we began this series several weeks ago with acknowledging the fact that there is a problem, that something is wrong in our lives, and we can't always put our finger on what it is. What is it? Something is off. It seems like there are spiritual forces that are trying to disrupt our walk with Jesus, trying to pull us away from God's will in our lives. We began with a video illustration, and I'd like to share that again with you because I think it's, it's fun, first of all, but I think it's so apt. It's so appropriate for this problem we're trying to acknowledge and trying to solve together in terms of what are these spiritual forces that we don't even recognize some of the time. So Molly, go ahead and show us this uh, shampoo. That would be so frustrating, right? You're trying to get a certain result. You're trying to rinse the soap out of your hair. It should be gone by now. This is how it works, but for some reason, it's not. And we, looking at this video, we all know the reason. This is a prank. Some pranksters having fun, just adding more shampoo to the people's hair. And they're getting so frustrated because they don't understand why. We said that's how we can feel sometimes. When we try to just, just live our lives and try to follow Christ and try to love our neighbors and try to be forgiving and kind, but just for some reason, ah, our usual efforts aren't working. And we said there's a reason for that. There are spiritual forces at work that are trying to keep us from God. And the Bible, the New Testament specifically, describes these forces as the devil, the flesh, and the world. And we've studied these for the past several weeks. Uh, there's a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, and I recommend this book. A lot of what we talked about comes from this book. He, he describes these three as the unholy trinity, the lies of the devil, the disordered desires of the flesh, our bodies telling us, you want something, you can have it. End of story. And then the collusion and the influence of the world. In this series, we exposed the strategy of these malevolent forces, and we said... We have a slide for this up here to help us remember this. That the lies of the devil, the deceitful ideas that get planted into our head, that come from the evil one, the devil, lead to, they play to disordered desires, which we call the flesh, and then they become normalized in a sinful society. That's kind of the trifecta. Lies of the devil lead to disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. We find people who say, the thing that you want to do, which is not pleasing to God, you can do, you should do. And we also said at the beginning of this series, we kind of made this disclaimer, because somebody might stop us here and say, whoa, 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 we're talking about devils, we're talking about demons, we're talking about spiritual forces at work. Aren't we a little too old for that? You might hear somebody object and say, that sounds awfully superstitious. That sounds like the kind of thing that young people believe, but we're a little bit more advanced and we're a little bit beyond that. And we said, we kind of have to get past that. If we are followers of Jesus, and he describes these things, he sees uh, an unseen world where these forces are at work, even if we have a hard time believing them because of our culture, maybe there's some trust involved. But there's an author named Richard Beck, and I, I want to commend him to you because uh, he investigates this. He spends a lot of his time He's a college professor, so he talks with a lot of young people who have some of these modern objections. Now, this sounds superstitious. This doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound made up. He says, well, there's a reason that it sounds 
it's harder for people to believe. And some of them are cultural reasons. I can't get too far into this. We could do a whole series on this, but this is just kind of an aside. In case somebody is out there going, this is all great, but this sounds like church talk. This sounds like the kind of things we, we say, and it's more mythological than real. I want to encourage you, suspend judgment. Go along with this, because it does kind of accurately describe the things that we're dealing with, the struggles that we have. They come from Christ. But back to Richard Beck. He says, part of the reason that we have trouble reading this is because most of us are Western. We are from the Western world, which has kind of like developed itself out of believing in these things. He says, Christians in other parts of the world do not have any trouble believing in evil spirits. Modern Americans have a harder time believing in unseen spiritual forces, whether they're good forces or bad forces, compared to Americans of previous generations, but also in different parts of the world. He says, Christians in South America and Africa do not doubt the existence of the devil or malevolent spiritual forces. You don't need to get them there. They're like, no, no, no. We, we see that. We believe that. that. We're already on board with that. But white people in the U.S. and in Europe have a harder time with this. There's also the myth of progress that's at work here. He describes how we think that we've gotten smarter and more scientific, and we have. There's, there's evidence all over for that. But we tend to get ahead of ourselves. We say, oh, we know more now than we used to. We don't need to rely on childish superstitions anymore. He says, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. There's, there's more to it than just that. Long story short, I, I'll kind of wrap this aside up by saying the two are not mutually exclusive. Beck talks about this more in two of his books, which I want to put uh, the pictures up here on the screen. One of them is called The Devil and Demons for the Doubting and Disenchanted. Uh, one of the best titles I've ever, I've ever heard. <laughs> Reviving Old Scratch, The Devil and Demons for the Doubting and Disenchanted. And then a newer book called Hunting Magic Eels, where he, he, the subtitle there is Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. I think that that's important. The more that we lose this enchanted faith, the more that we lose the trust that, hey, there are unseen forces out there. Just as surely as we believe in the work of God in our lives, we believe in a God who hears our prayers, we believe that this God is doing battle with spiritual forces that are negative, we kind of have to take the whole thing as a package deal. But one of the things that you lose when you start to have a faith that is what he calls disenchanted, starts to rely more on the seen and disregard or disbelieve in the unseen, there's a downside to that. Instead of recognizing the enemies in our lives being what we have been saying, the devil, the flesh, and the world, if you don't believe in those things, then the enemies in your life become your neighbor, or your spouse, or your kids, or the stranger or the person who doesn't believe all the same things you believe. And isn't that what Scripture tells us? Aren't those the kinds of people that we're supposed to love? Aren't we supposed to love our neighbors and the strangers? And aren't we supposed to love our enemies, even? When we disbelieve in the malevolent spiritual forces, then, okay, well, then the enemy is not the devil. There's no devil. The enemy is that guy or that person or this, this person that rubs me the wrong way. And we start to fight each other. We start to take away people's dignity. Scripture tells us that God has given us all this inherent dignity. He says, you are my creation. I made you, and you are good. God calls us his children. He calls us to be brothers and sisters and not to fight each other. Paul describes who the real enemy is in Ephesians chapter 6. 
This is just an excerpt out of a longer section on spiritual battles that we need to be aware of. But Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We can easily fall into the habit of fighting the wrong fight. Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament tells us, don't fight your neighbor, don't fight your brother, don't fight your sister, but fight the spiritual enemies, the enemies of the soul. And we fight them by using spiritual methods and spiritual weapons. And we've talked about this in our series. For each enemy of the soul, the devil, the flesh, and the world, we've identified an antidote, a Christian practice that has worked for the followers of Jesus for centuries. And I want to take a moment to recap some of those and remind us of the things that we talked about. When we said, if the strategy of the devil is to plant lies into our minds and get us to believe things that sound true but aren't actually true, then the antidote for the lies of the devil is the words of Scripture and times of prayer. And we look to Jesus as an example of this. Jesus prioritized removing himself from people and distractions. He did this regularly. He spent time with his Father just praying. And that's something that we need to make time to do as well. But we acknowledge that that kind of gets bumped a lot. Our schedules get busy and we get, we get caught up in doing other things. That sometimes is the first thing to go in our day. But if we prioritize spending time in prayer, then we're reminded of the truth and we don't fall for the lies as much. And we look to the example of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry when he went out into the wilderness for a time of prayer and fasting. And the devil comes and tempts Jesus, but he combats the lies of the devil with words of Scripture. You can look in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 for this story. It's a great example. The words of truth from Scripture counter the lies of the devil. We follow that example. And we re remember this guy we talked about named Evagrius of Pontus? Remember, nod your head if Evagrius sounds like a, a weird 4th century monk that we took a look at. He had a great idea. His idea was just, you know what Jesus did? We should do that. If we are starting to hear lies that could derail our faith, what we need to do instead is take those lies captive, you, like write them down. Write down the negative thoughts that you have in your head. And then see if there's a truth from Scripture that you can pair with it to sort of counter that lie. He got really, really good at this. I told you that you should do this. And I promised you that I would do this as well. And I did. But a couple weeks after, I looked at my list and I went, man, this list is actually pretty personal. Some of these lies that I listened to and that I even believed on a regular basis, they make me look like an idiot. They're embarrassing. I was going to share them with you, but I decided not to. <laughs> but I still think that they're effective. And this morning, I, I weeded through them, and I, I found a couple that I am willing to share with you. And I'm going to do this because I want you to do the same thing. And I want to acknowledge that it can be a strange and painful process to go, yeah, this is a lie that I believe daily. Or this is a voice in my head that I want to believe because it like fuels my anger or my, my, my bitterness towards someone. That kind of stuff needs to be brought to the surface. It needs to be exposed by the light of Christ. So uh, in the form of Jesus combating the lies of the devil with words from Scripture and 
in the example of Evagrius of Pontus, how we need to be journaling and tracking our negative thoughts to examine them for truth or lies, I want to share two recurring thoughts that I have had uh, lately or in the past that came from my list of uh, things to uh, keep track of. Molly, you can put these up on the screen. I made a slide. So this is Evagrius of Pontus. This is kind of the format that he has. Against the thought, and then he lists the negative thought, and then he supplies the scripture. Mine goes, against the thought that people are going to keep leaving the church unless I do something to retain them. The words from Jesus come to mind. One, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. This is from the story of uh, Jesus in the home of Lazarus. His two sisters, Martha's in the kitchen, getting everything ready. Maybe you're a Martha. Maybe when someone comes over, you got to scramble to make sure everything's fine. you got to serve. And she sticks her head out the door, and she's like, Whoo! Jesus! My sister Mary is not helping. It would be great if you told her to come in here and help me out. Well, Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was teaching. He was talking. And she was taking the posture of the student, and not the posture of the kitchen help. And Martha's thinking, hey, she's supposed to be in here with me. Jesus, will you stand her straight? But he doesn't. He says, ah, you're worried about many things. You can only be worried about the one thing. She's, chose what is, she's chosen what is better. She's sitting at my feet. She's listening to my words. I hear Jesus. When I get anxious about this church or my role in this church or any number of specific things that go along with that, I remember the voice of Jesus saying, hey, you're worried about a lot of things, but you don't need to be worried about them. Or another one for the same thing. I remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You could take this and you could copy-paste it into anything that you become anxious about. Any kind of future that you have some control over but cannot control the outcome of. This is an example uh, from my life. Here's one more that's, that's pretty personal as well. Against the thought that my wife does not prioritize spending time with me. This thought comes and goes. I'm reminded of the wisdom from Proverbs that says, A wife of noble character? Who can find it? She is worth far more than rubies. These words of truth remind me, your wife's awesome. <laughs> Maybe you're asking for too much if you're asking for more, because what I've given you is quite a treasure in itself. Or the, the Apostle Paul quoting Jesus in the book of Acts, where it just simply says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, when I'm feeling like I'm not getting enough, the words of scriptures remind me, yeah, but what are you giving? Isn't that your responsibility? Isn't that your role? Anyway, continue this practice. These thoughts are going to come and go. They're going to sound like truth. They're going to poison you against the people in your life unless you say, you know what? That's not truth. That's deception. That's a lie. And here's the truth. Here's where I live. Here's what I'm, I'm resting uh, myself on. So that's the lies of the devil, how we combat them using scripture and using times of prayer. And then we said, the enemy, the flesh, that there's an antidote to the desires of the flesh taking over our lives. We said, spiritual disciplines of fasting and confession. All spiritual disciplines are helpful in kind of keeping our lives on track and keeping them from being drawn away with just any thought or whim or will or desire that we might have. But specifically, we said fasting and confession. 
Right now we're in a season called Lent in the Christian calendar. It's the days leading up toward Easter. And traditionally, historically, Christians have said, you know what, I'm going to give something up for Lent. You might have heard people say, I'm going to give up alcohol or chocolate or online shopping or, or whatever it is for Lent, just to, to be more disciplined in preparation for the Easter celebration. Uh, I gave up something for Lent this year. I thought I would share it with you. Um, I gave up, well, I, took my, I realized that I was spending a lot of time scrolling on my phone. I was spending time on uh, Facebook and emails and even just like news, like news feeds, like what's going on? Oh, okay, what's happening in Ukraine and all this kind of stuff. It's, none of those things are bad, but they were taking up a ton of my time. And here I am around my family, around people I should be paying attention to, and I'm over here going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So I deleted three things off my phone. I deleted my internet browser. I deleted my social media apps, the ones that were sucking most of my time. Even like the Facebook scrolling that I was doing, I'm like, ooh, what's going on with this person that I knew 20 years ago? Oh, wow, they just bought a, a new fence for their farmhouse. Who cares? Who cares? What does this have to do with it? It was like a daily thing. You get those feeds that tell you how much time you're spent sucked into this, and I realized, all right, this is something not only I can give up, but like it will bless my life if I do. It makes you realize how much you're attached to it when you say, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to set this aside. Fasting, we do this with food, but you could do this with anything else that is a part of your life. And you say, let's see how I do without it. Let's see if it creates more space in my life for connection, for community, for prayer. It's up to you how you want to interpret that. But that's the spiritual discipline of fasting. And then we had some experience with confession. We encourage you to say, hey, bring something to the surface. Admit to somebody, I'm not perfect. Confess something that is in your, your heart, like a darkness that you don't want people to find out about it. And that's, it's counterintuitive, right? The things that I don't want people to find out about, why would I let them find out about it? That would ruin me. But Jesus challenges us to say, ah, no, no, no. Let the light shine in the darkness. Bring some of these things to light. Then you don't have to hold on to them anymore. Then they're not eating away at your, your soul. They don't disorder your desires in the way that the flesh wants to have happen. So fasting and confession. And then the last couple of weeks we've talked about this term that the scripture calls the world. Uh, and it says the antidote for the influence of the world is being connected in Christian community. Just being in tune, letting other Christians know what's going on in your life. In the book, John Mark Homer describes something that I thought was a little bit extreme. It's something that I don't do, but I thought, hey, that's kind of a cool idea. He said, I'm in this Christian uh, small group with people from my church. It's not the whole church, but it's this group of families that I meet with. And he said, part of our, the thing that I have committed to them is that if I spend more than $1,000 on something, we have a rule that I came up with that I have to run it by my Christian community. And I thought, well, that's weird. I don't do that. Lisa and I bought a new minivan. We didn't ask any of you guys if you thought that was a smart idea or not. But he said part of what he calls his rule of life, part of these boundaries and, and guide rails to help him stay faithful, is that any financial purchase that's over $1,000, he's going to just run it by his group and say, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. What do you think? Okay. Interesting. Christian community and how you let other people in your life will kind of give them permission to point out some blind spots. Some things that maybe you didn't realize. Maybe they'll help you ask some questions you didn't think to ask on your own. Uh, but it helps us re resist the normalization of sin in our society. And last week we talked about how being in Christian community helps the world discover an attractive alternative. 
You know, some people don't know what life in Christ looks like or what life within the Christian community, how it can bless your life, help you grow in your faith and trust in God. But once they discover that, it's an amazing thing. I heard two cool examples between last Sunday and this Sunday, and uh, I didn't ask the people if I could have permission to share them with you. So I'm one of those, I'm going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission things. Um, but Dave Yamans told me a story about uh, being in a, a store and he was buying a battery for, or a woman was buying a, a battery for her camera. She needed it to, to photograph the snow that had come. So there was like, it was time sensitive thing. She's like, oh, I need this battery. Oh, you can buy it here, but it doesn't come charged. So you're going to need to wait four hours. She's like, ah, I don't have four hours. What am I going to do? And Dave just happened to be overhearing this conversation. He takes out his battery from his camera bag and says, hey, I've got what you need. Boom. There you go. What an amazing, kind gesture. What a light to shine. He's providing an attractive alternative. And the second one, after worship last Sunday, where you guys were all praying together in groups, I went outside to tell Ginger's bus driver from Heritage Estates, we're going to be a few minutes. It's going to be like five or ten minutes. And I got into a conversation with her. Her name is Lisa. And we were talking about Ginger. And she said, man, Ginger is a fantastic lady. She was singing your praises. She was just saying, like, she is, she's got so much wisdom. She is in such good shape for somebody her age. And again, I'm sorry. I should have asked you if I could share this. But I bet you would have said no. <laughs> but I was just reminded by your bus driver that there's this amazing light of Christ that you shine just by being who you are in her life. She had so many good things to say about you. And she was expressing interest in our church and in the way of following Jesus because of the attractive alternative that Ginger provided. Oh. But all these things that we're talking about, they require discipline. They require consistency. You know, you can, you can write down a journal of, of negative thoughts and be like, oh, that was an interesting exercise. But each of these things we're talking about, confession and scripture reading and times of prayer and fasting, they need to be something that we add to our life and maintain. They have to be consistent. Like if you're trying to get in shape, like I could easily get down on the stage right now and knock out 50 push-ups. Well, let me back up. I could easily get down on the stage right now and knock out five push-ups. <laughs> Probably more realistic. That doesn't mean I'm in shape. That's something that you have to do daily. It's something you have to do consistently. We could try these things once and go, oh, it wasn't that good. Good for me. And then just kind of go back to the way things were. But it's more than just a one-time commitment. It's about sticking with it. It's about forming new habits. It's about abstaining from evil and replacing it with good. Being disciplined requires us to take Jesus seriously when he says things like this. The Son of Man, he told his disciples, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day, be raised to life. Molly, we've got this up on the screen. If you uh, hit that slide for us, please. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. More counterintuitive wisdom from Jesus. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and let you, yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
He says this more than once. And he says this sometimes at the height of his popularity. People are like, Jesus, you're awesome. What's next? This is a fun ride. And he says, well, we're going to the cross. Well, you need to sacrifice. Well, you need to lay down your life. Well, you need to be a little disciplined in following me. And people go, ah, that doesn't sound like fun. A lot of people turn and walk away. Jesus is not trying to do a bait and switch. Like, hey, I'm going to make this look great. And oh, here's the, here's the fine print. Here's the thing you didn't see coming. Jesus is very clear up front about what it means to follow him. I'm going to lay down my life, he says. You're going to lay down your life. That's where this thing is headed. You still want to follow me? You still want to give it a shot? Are you willing to trust me? Jesus is asking. And we can acknowledge that it's a big ask. John Mark Comer, the author of this book that the series is based on, says this, to say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil, to spending my time and my money however I want, to the hyper-individualism, anti-authoritarianism, and full-tilt, hedonistic pursuit of our day. A lot of fancy words there. And that's hard to do, because we have, (laughs) what we've done so intentionally or not, is that we spend a lot of our years a lot of our lives prioritizing and chasing after some of the things that Christ is calling us to give up. The enemies of the soul want us to believe that we are owed something, but the gospel says that we owe Christ everything. The enemies of the soul want to promise us the whole world, which by the way is something that they can't actually deliver, but Jesus promises that whoever loses their life will save it. That's a word of truth for Jesus that we could take to heart. Apply in our lives and examine what does that look like. There's a Christian stand-up comedian that I like. His name is Michael Jr. And uh, he says when he first started getting into comedy, he did what every other stand-up comic was trying to do. There's one goal in stand-up comedy, and that's to get laughs. You watch stand-up comedy, there's a lot of different ways that comics will try to do this, but your goal is to get a reaction from your audience. Make them laugh. Get, fill that room with noise. The worst thing you can do here as a stand-up comic is silence. You are trying to get laughs. And that's what he did when he started out. But then he says, as he continued on, he realized that the goal actually wasn't to get laughs. He says, my responsibility, as I see it now, as a stand-up comic, is to give laughs. You might think, well, isn't it the same result? People are laughing. Isn't this just kind of a semantic way of putting things differently. No, it's actually quite a different approach. If his attitude in comedy is like, all right, you guys are going to affirm me. You're going to feed my ego. You're going to laugh so it looks good on the recording. That's one attitude. That's an attitude that a lot of people live their lives by, stand-up comic or not. But if his attitude shifts to, I've got something to offer. I want you to enjoy yourselves. I am here to lighten the room, to give you something that you can have, that you can take with you. His goal becomes to give and not to get. It's a complete mind shift. I'm here for you. I'm here to give you something. Let me serve you. And I say that because I think that's a good thing to put alongside what Jesus calls his disciples to. Jesus says, just as I serve you, I'm calling you to serve others. Just as I love you, I'm calling you to love others. Just as the purpose of my life was to defeat sin and evil and death by laying my life down, 
So the purpose of your life, too, is to give it up. If our expectations change from getting to giving, then I think we're on the right track. So that kind of wraps up our series. Next week I'm going to start a, a series studying through the book of Exodus. Ooh, a lot of good stuff in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, and not just like, this is a fun history to know. I think you understand Jesus a lot better if you understand the Exodus. We understand what it means to truly have freedom in Christ when we study what God's version of freedom looks like in the story of the Exodus. So I'm excited to, to walk us through that, to lead us on that journey. Meanwhile, I encourage you guys to continue practicing these disciplines that we've cultivated, that we've commended, that we've talked about in this series, the disciplines of prayer, of dwelling in Scripture, fasting and confession, and being connected in Christian community. And remember, it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And even as this sermon series comes to an end, I hope the effects of continuing on in the Christian disciplines will continue. As always, my door is always open if you want to talk about these things, you need someone to talk about how, hey, this is challenging. What do we do? What about in this situation? It's like uh, any discipline that you take on or any New Year's resolution. It goes better if you share it with somebody and say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I need you to help hold me accountable. I, I want to do it with you, like having a, a walking buddy or a workout buddy. Like You're going to be more likely to do it if you're doing it alongside with somebody. If I can be that person for you, let me know. Uh, but there's a whole room full of people who would be excellent uh, swim buddies in that regard. Uh, just let me know. That's pretty much all I've got for this morning. So I'm going to close this out with prayer. And then uh, Phil's going to come up here and share some more specific prayer requests that came from the congregation. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every time we open it, it, it looks different. It means something more. It, it, it is richer and valuable in how we can apply it in our lives. We thank you for the words of truth that come from Jesus and that sometimes clash with the wisdom of the world. That sometimes don't sound quite right because we're so used to something that sounds easier or more reachable or more pleasurable. But just God, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us wisdom to distinguish truth from lies. Give us a desire to follow Jesus, to see the fruit of your Spirit growing in our lives. Spur us on to good deeds. Let us encourage one another to love and to be that attractive alternative that we're called to be in Christ, in a world full of your beloved children who may have not heard the good news about hope in Christ. God, I pray for this congregation. I pray for your church, that we can be what you have called us to be. That just as there are some things we need to lay down in the season of Lent, and we, we, help, we pray that you will help us to lay down things that we don't need in our lives at all. To filter them out. To be in pursuit of things that matter, that are more meaningful. Give us a community of brothers and sisters that can help us to know the difference between what is worthwhile and what is a waste of our time and of your time. Help us to grow more and more in faith, in maturity, and in trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.